0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, Salam, and welcome to the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahna Saqqani. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing with you my conversation with Leila Yagiela about her book Among the Eunuchs, A Muslim Transgender Journey, published in 2022 with Hearst Publishers. In this powerful book, Yagiela tells her own story as a trans-Muslim living among a third gender community known as Hwaja Sira in Pakistan and Hijra in India. Throughout the book, we learn about this community, the ways that they forge relationships with each other and with the mainstream community, the roles they play in society, the, the challenges that they face, all told from an inviting, loving perspective. Yagiela's academic background as an anthropologist is especially prominent in her writing, given her attention to the everyday in this book. Yagiela also pays close attention to religious history, to Islam more specifically, and the role of trans people in Islam. However, as Yagiela emphasizes in our conversation, this book is not about trans people. It is specifically her own journey as a part of a community that she cannot be separated from. The book, in fact, resists attempts to essentialize and clearly define Identity. In our conversation, Yagiella discusses the origins of the book and its contributions to our understandings of gender and sexuality in the Muslim South Asian context, the evolution of the terms for this third gender community, her own experiences as a trans person traveling throughout the region, colonialism and its impacts on trans identity, homo nationalism and identity as ideology and the importance and beauty of nuance, complexity, and ambiguity, which this book embraces. Without further ado, here's Leila Yagiela talking about her book, Among the Eunuchs. Salam, Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your very, very amazing and very powerful and insightful book, Among the Eunuchs, A Muslim Transgender Journey. I am so honored you're here to talk to me today. Um, As you know, I've assigned your book in my classes and my students loved it, like absolutely loved it. Um, And we'll talk a little bit uh, in in the interview what it was about it that students um, were so attracted to and that they were so inspired by. Uh, But thank you for being here. I'm very happy you're here.
1: I'm very happy to be here and uh, it, it really touches my heart to know that my book speaks to your students and speaks to you as well. And I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Great. So uh, we begin our interview with uh, asking our authors to tell us about their intellectual journey, what got you to where you are now, who are you, where are you, what do you do? Yeah. (laughs)
1: Uh, That's a wonderful question. Um, (laughs) Precisely, it's a wonderful question because I I I kind of wrote the book so that I don't have to a- answer that question anymore. You know, <laughs> I <laughs> this is precisely what what it's about. You know, the the because my I've always felt that whenever people ask me any questions about myself or or my identity or my background, it's it's always touching on so many complexities because we are all we are all these complex human beings and we have all these different kinds of belonging. Um, but in the world that we live in, we're constantly forced to fit into some kind of narrow little box or, you know, like like um, kind of tone down something that's very complex to something that's very simple and easy. And I at some point realized, okay, I um, to really speak about who I am, and how I became the person that I am, I need to write this book, Um, or uh, definitely a book. I cannot just answer this question in a sentence, Uh, but I'm going to try um, for you and for your listeners, for our audience. I I am a human being first and foremost, and I would say that's the most important thing about me. I was born and raised in Germany, uh, as uh, people will understand from my accent. And um, I'm also at the moment living and working in Germany, uh, in the beautiful city of Heidelberg. Um, I was born and raised in this country, but I have a family history with a lot of different kind of migration stories, which is still something that is, I I mean, the the question of whether people with migration histories really belong to white German society or not is still a contested question in this society. It's, It's, for people here, it's not as simple as maybe for a lot of US Americans, for example, where almost everybody has some kind of immigrant history and their families and um, so I I was always confronted with this question here whether I belong to this society that I grew up in or not. Um, I grew up in a very rural community that was over 90% just you know the regular white German um overwhelmingly Catholic, Um, and already Protestants were considered a bit of an odd minority when I was a child. And I so I I faced this question, this question about my cultural, racial, national belonging. And at the same time, I also realized that the gender that was assigned to me um, also didn't really fit. I was assigned the male gender at birth. I was raised as a boy but i never felt that that was correct and i i'm not entirely sure whether i clearly felt i was a girl i think it was more that i realized i was not a boy you know it was more this the realization that i did not fit into that category that that society assigned to me and um yeah both both of these experiences led me very quickly Already, you know, when I was very young, I think even even before I I learned to read or write that I, I started to question all these social assumptions about identity, about belonging, about you are this, but you are not that. And um, interestingly, I think it was actually this this experience that has led me to identify with Islam. I. I was not born into a Muslim family, although my family does have connections to uh, uh, the history of the Muslim world, but it was very, very early in life already when I was also, when I was still a child, basically, that I felt that Islam could be the answer to my questions about about, about this existence, basically, about the meaning of life, and... Uh, I think that it was fine as long as I was a little child, but it became more and more complicated when I became a teenager. Uh, my body was changing. This question of my sexual gender belonging suddenly became much more serious. You know, you have all kinds of hormones rushing through your body. Um, you fall in love for the first time, but society tells you that you're not falling in love in the right way. And I had started to go to mosque regularly, and I also um, suddenly realized that in that mainstream Muslim community that I experienced there, there were there were also a lot of assumptions about sexuality and gender that didn't really help um, help me with with really understanding who I was and um, yeah, that that started a very, very difficult time of my life. My teenager years were not easy. There was a lot that I was going through. I, I developed a very severe depression. I developed other issues at that time. I wanted to change. I tried not to be the person that I am. I questioned my faith, then came back to my faith again. Um, I went to the mosque when I could go, when I felt I could go, but then also going to the mosque also felt me, and it made me feel guilty because of the implicit assumptions um, that were transmitted there in the teachings that somehow as a good Muslim, you should have a very clear heterosexual sexuality. You should have a very clear binary gender uh, defined by your, by the, by the gender that you were assigned at birth. And, um, Eventually, at some point, I realized that I needed to do my own research. I needed to look at Islam on my own terms. I needed to explore my identity uh, on my own. Um, Fortunately, as a teenager, the Internet came into my life, and suddenly I had this wealth of information at my disposal. And also, I could suddenly connect globally. You know, I was in a small town in Germany and already being a Muslim, was something that was not, you know, there there were not many other Muslims around. But suddenly, thanks through the internet, I could connect to other trans Muslims. I could connect to other queer Muslims. I could learn about the world, um, about different kinds of queer identities that have existed in Muslim societies for centuries that have a place in in Muslim societies traditionally. And uh, most importantly, I learned about... Um the third gender community in South Asia, or I mean, it's the term third gender is a bit contested as well. It's an anthropological term, but it's a community that is um usually referred to in India as the hijra community and now in Pakistan, the politically correct term is Khajasara Community. Um, it is a community that historically, has some connections to uh, to the court eunuchs that used to work at the at the Muslim courts, the aristocratic courts. And um, I decided that I I had to go to South Asia and um, get to know to this community. And um, thanks thanks through a lot of, I mean I, I've at that point I started to publish my own thinking. Uh, on what it means to be a Muslim, a, a young Muslim trans person online. I had uh, I, I, I had one of these GeoCities cities uh, homepages. I don't know whether people still remember them, uh, and it was called Leila's Chaihane, and um, so I published some stuff on on trans issues and Islam at that time and via that I got into contact with a US American trans activist Anne Ockburn and she actually was the first who who had had um you know had built up some kind of exchange between Western trans communities and the South Asian communities and she then offered to introduce me um to this to this community in India first and um, so I went there, um, then later on my own, went to Pakistan, uh, interacted with the community there, and through that developed this now already two decades old interaction in my life, this interplay of, of different experiences related to what it means to be a transgender person and a Muslim in this, in this global world that we live in, um, yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, I think I should also mention that that then at some point I started to go to university and become an anthropologist, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mentioned it a bit like an after afterthought, <laughs> and uh, it, it's it it kind of is for me because really my my the personal reasons for why I started to explore these issues and why I had this journey are more important to me than the academic reasons. But of course, my... Um, and I write about that in my book, that my my academic identities and my my academic training as an anthropologist and and a scholar of religion informs me as well. And it has informed me on that journey. And at the same time, my personal individual journey informs my academic work and my academic thinking.
0: Oh, the academic in you, the anthropologist in you is present ev- on every page of the book. It's, I mean, it just goes without saying. And those make for some of the most exciting uh, parts of the book. And so uh, thank you so much for telling us your story. I really appreciate it. Tell us about the book. How, how might you describe the book that what you're trying to accomplish in here, who you hope will read the book? Uh, what they hopefully will get out of the book,
1: I think the thing that is most important to me to always say and to mention because people might easily have misconceptions about that is that this is this is not a book about the South Asian uh, transgender community, and it's not a book that that speaks for that community. Um, that I, I I don't. I'm not in the position to do that, but it's precisely it's it's a book about my personal journey and it involves all these these uh, these knowledges that uh, that inform my personal journey. Um, but I I do think that in that sense, it's it's in in many ways a book about the global society that we live in now because most of us and especially if 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 i look at the muslim community um most of us now have have connections all over the world you know we we are rooted in different different cultural settings we are rooted in this global world um we are uh sometimes also struggling with that you know trying to negotiate these different belongings and trying to to negotiate different value systems um and uh, at the same time we have all these all these big political debates at the moment where we can see that a lot of people are also very, they are not feeling very happy with this new new global world that we live in where there's so much mixing and so much hybridity going on and and so much migration and so much exchange across borders. Um, and what what I actually, what I want to do with my book is I want to offer a contribution to to all these debates that we're having in our times, which try to essentialize identities, whether it's whether it's um cultural identity or whether it's gender identity, you know, but but everywhere where we talk about identity in our day and age, the discourse is very essentializing, it's very exclusive and excluding. Um we have very harsh discourses around this. and I, I just want people to look at the realities of the world that we live in and to understand that being a human being is is so much more complex than just belonging to one identity and having this identity clearly defined and 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 delimited. I, I want us to embrace these multiple belongings, these multiple, knowledges that we have and to um to to draw some kind of positive potential from that, both you know for us as individuals but also for for hopefully a better society and a better future, which sounds very grand, you know because you could also say, oh, it's just a book for and about Muslim transgender experiences but yeah i I think in the end it's about something bigger it's it's something that should interest far more people than just people who have some specific interest in Muslim or transgender questions.
0: Oh, absolutely. It is so much more grand than simply about trans issues because there, there's something about this book, there's something about the way you're writing and the way you're telling the story and the way that you connect with your readers that it's so easy for readers of any background to connect with it. So I when I was assigning it in my classes, the students of mine who are not open to conversations on trans issues, who don't acknowledge trans identity as legitimate identities, um, or who, who aren't Muslims, who aren't queer, uh, they still loved the book and they still connected with it because there's something there's something that you're doing to connect with your readers. So you don't have to be knowledgeable. A reader doesn't have to be knowledgeable about, or even, again, open to accepting trans identity and experiences as important. Um, you know, I think that everyone should, but... Uh, that's a separate story. But because this book covers themes, the, the themes that you cover in this book are such that all of us can relate to, right? You, you know, being on a journey of self-discovery and self-understanding and self-growth, struggling and negotiating with our own identities and ourselves and our communities and our faiths. Uh, you I mean, the themes of ambiguity and complexity, the politics, right? The politics of the of the very, very, very personal decisions that we make that you we don't make decisions in a vacuum, um, whether or not you might not want to identify as a trans person, but you end up having to because of the particular circumstances or context you live in. and just just overall instability. we're we're a very unstable species as humans, right? So I, the, the, the all of these themes combined and so much more make this book so incredibly rich and so up and relevant to anybody. Um, and I, I remember the way that my students were talking about. They didn't know that I know you personally, but the way that they would just talk about you, the way that they would talk about the book, and uh, the way they, they would describe some of the chapters in the in the book. And of course, when they got to meet you and talk with you, it was really meaningful to me that you could that you could reach audiences, such diverse audiences, um, in such a beautiful way. And and we'll talk about some of those themes of you know complexity and ambiguity in in just a bit also, but. I just wanted to say absolutely that I think the book is way beyond um, any one limited topic. I I am curious about the, not curious, but I want to talk about terminology first. So um, let's talk about the title of the book, which is Among the Eunuchs, right? So for those of us who aren't familiar with these terms, can you tell us, can you define um, the term eunuch, uh, trans, um, you don't have to define all of these because I I know that they're also very politically, you know, there's a lot of context to how we define them, but how are we defining the word eunuch here, um, and how are we in, in the, and and we'll talk later about the different South Asian communities, Pakistan, um, using the word khajasara, uh, and India using the word hijra still, but how are we using these terms in you know, a trans, eunuch, queer, hijra, khajasara uh, throughout the book?
1: That's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I, <laughs> that i get the opportunity to talk about this because i i just said a couple of days ago uh during another event that i do expect to to get canceled at some point because of this book title uh, among the yuruks i do anticipate that um i do realize it's a very controversial title and it's it's probably very uncomfortable uncomfortable for um, a lot of trans people um, to be somehow connected to, to Unix. Um, but um, I, well, you, you do choose the title of a book also sometimes a little bit to provoke a little bit and to, um, you know, to, to catch, catch the eyes of people and, and, um, of course, uh, that, that that's part of it. But also why I chose this title is because I do I, I really want people to look at the complexities of vocabulary. you know, I I just I talked about the complexity of identity, but connected with that is the question of vocabulary and and we're constantly we're we're facing this question in our day and age of of constantly also changing. Uh, a, ch- a changing lingo around these things. You know, it's very difficult to keep up with it. You know, terms that that are politically correct now um, will not be politically correct in five years or ten years. Um, people of my age, um, queer people, trans people, um, have already gone through so many phases of vocabulary that at some point, you you do wonder. Um, well. In, you do wonder whether words are that important, actually, on the one hand. But on the other hand, you also realize the, the intense power that words actually hold. And the, the question of eunuchs in this context, well, it's for us, it's a bit uncomfortable to connect trans women to eunuchs because we mostly identify the term eunuchs with this idea of castrated men, who were sold into slavery and who then had to work, were forced to work as slaves um, in, in in palaces not only of Muslim societies but also many other societies of of antiquity and of medieval times. Um, but historically the the meaning of, the meaning of eunuch was much broader. The, we, the meaning of eunuch covered different kinds of identities different kinds of human beings who did not fully fit into the gender binary so this is originally how how the word was used um, and at the same time it's a word that carries a certain prestige because it means it the the, the 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 word originally comes from greek from the greek language and in in the greek language it's the um it's the Protector of the bedchamber chamber, um, and uh, also uh, in, in 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 biblical language, in in translations, older translations of the Bible is often translated as chamberlain. You know, so it's it's on the one hand, it's a term for people who are gendered in a way that is not um, fitting into the usual binary, and on the other hand, it it designates somebody. Who has a very important position in in a social and political hierarchy, and we do see, um, in particular in South Asia, that indeed those communities that that we call third gender communities or hijra or khajasra, they did have a strong connection to this. To this, you know, social political office of the eunuch. And they identified with it very much. Um and actually, and this is something that's it's it's a bit funny when we're looking at the development of politically correct language in South Asia. What we see is that um in in the English speaking media and in, in the English speaking context, about let's say 20 years ago so exactly at the time when I started my journey there when when I uh, when I came to India for the first time it was very very common um to speak about the community as as eunuchs and that at a time also when the word transgender was not so well known you know nowhere in the world I mean in the West as well 20 years ago we didn't have the kind of... You know, that, that that actually now quite crazy debate that we have about trans issues and everybody has an opinion on trans issues at the mo- moment, whether it's a good opinion or a bad opinion, but we didn't have that um, 20 years ago. And if you would have asked somebody um, in our Western societies, you would have asked people about trans people. A lot of people wouldn't have any idea what transgender means, what is that kind of term. But at the same time, if you would have asked somebody in India or Pakistan 20 years ago, you would ask them about eunuchs, they would immediately know what this word refers to. And they would think about these third gender communities, these hijras and khajasaras. A couple of years ago, I would say 10 years ago, the the English Language in South Asia changed around that eunuch became much much less popular um, But there wasn't an immediate switch to the term transgender There were a lot of other words that were used in between and some were self designations of the community as well so um, And and for quite a while around 2009 2010 the word shemale was very popular which is a term that's probably even more uncomfortable than eunuch actually, because in particular here in the West, we identify it with pornography, she pornography. But a lot of people in the community, when they were trying to explain what they were in in English or with English vocabulary, they would say, we are she Ever since we, we've now seen that particularly through especially through the work of Western NGOs or Western-connected NGOs, um, both Indian and Pakistani mainstream societies, but also the communities have been taught that Gmail is not a proper word for the community. Um, eunuch is also not a proper word for the community. And now we should refer to these people as trans people, as transgender people. So this is the move that we've seen in um, in the... In the English speaking field and English speaking media. But funnily enough, in the Urdu-speaking media, we have exactly the opposite move. Because there originally um, we had both in India and Pakistan, we just had the word hijra being used as, as the regular U word. In Pakistan, also for a long, long time, the equivalent word, the, the equivalent Punjabi word, kusra was used. Um, and both were used for a long, time as self-designations of the community. But at some point, I mean, it's all, it's it's not easy to describe this process because words like hidra and kusra were always also used as insults by mainstream society. And when you're faced with a situation like that as a community. You are f- you, you you can decide: Are you going to appropriate this for yourself and use it as a term of empowerment or not? Um, we've seen this in 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 Western LGBT communities. Words like queer or gay, for example, were insults at some point, but still communities chose to um, to use these words as terms of empowerment in particular in the Pakistani context, at some point the community said, no, we don't want to be designated by those terms anymore. Um, we want to be called Khajasara. Um, the irony is that Khajasara literally means Khootin. That is the literal meaning of that Urdu word. It, it's, a, it's a Timurid Persian word, and it means it actually literally means the same as that that biblical Chamberlain, you know, because of Khad, you have these Khaja Sarah. So Khaja is like it's, it's a honorific, you know, and Sarah is a term for the um, for the royal chambers, basically. So that is the original meaning of Khaja Sarah. So we have. Uh, we, we we, ironically, you know, in the English-speaking field, we have this development that the word eunuch has become, is, is now considered not politically correct anymore, and we're thinking mostly of castrated slaves in that context and not of trans people, while in the Urdu-speaking field, the, the word for a court eunuch is now the politically correct word to use in Pakistan in particular. Um, and... Um, I, I find that such an interesting example for how how complex language can work and how how important it is to look at specific contexts and and that it's not so much about you know what what words literally mean or what the dictionary meaning of a word is, but that we when we look at vocabulary, we always have to look at the specific social context and and the privileges. That are so associated with with these particular words. Now, when we're speaking about these South Asian communities, whether we're speaking of Rajasthas or Hijras, or there are also plenty of other local terms. What we traditionally talk about is um, a community that consists mostly of people who were either assigned. The male gender at birth but who never felt that that was their true gender and who understand themselves and construct themselves in 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 a more feminine way um whether that means that they say i am a woman or not is you know that that's that that can be different from individual to individual but it it's more important to say that okay they do not Identify with the gender they were assigned with at uh, at birth, um, or what we also find in the community are um, intersex individuals. Both are traditionally part of this community, um, and this community has its own social structure. It has its own, you could say, family structures. It's I also I often say it's a bit similar to the ballroom houses that maybe people know from. Uh, from the Netflix series Pose or from uh, from the documentary Paris is Burning, you know, so you have something similar sometimes in, in Western context as well. You have these surrogate families, um, members of the community support each other. They are solidaries with each other. And traditionally, um, traditionally, they are thought to have special powers because there's this traditional idea that if if god gives you a more difficult life than others have then he will he will give you some kind of recompensation for that and so there's this idea that then members of this community have a power to bless or to curse others they they have a strong connection to the sufi saints they have um, they have a specific spiritual charisma that is, that is the traditional power of that community which, however, nowadays is you know waning and much less accepted in society, unfortunately. Whether we can equate the people in this community so easily with a globalized Western term as 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 transgender is again, it's a contested question and it's a question that's also discussed within the community. There are people in the community who actually do not want to be called transgender because they say transgender is some kind of Western globalized concept. There also are people in the community who up until today actually prefer the word eunuch. There also are people in the community who actually prefer the term shemale. Um, so the the way this how this local community relates to globalized identities, Western identities, um, that is not so easy to answer and can differ from individual to individual and also from the class and family background and so on and so on that that people come from. But that in particular, again, it, it, it raises this question about, okay, what does it mean to be a human being in this world that we live in now, with all these different kinds of knowledges and belongings, and you may have you may have a Western, uh, Western Muslim trans woman like myself who goes to South Asia who interacts with that community, but you now also have hijra and khaja activists who go on conferences in Europe or or in the U.S. and who also interact um, with the Western trans community there we have the internet all around us and of course people in the community in india and pakistan they consume the internet as well they get influenced by all kinds of different discourses on on gender and sexuality so we are at this point now in in history where we we cannot essentialize these these local cultural identities anymore because everybody whether it's a it's a european muslim like me, or whether it's a Sara in Pakistan, we are all now, we, we have these different ways of, of how to name our identities and how to conceptualize them. And we all have to negotiate these different ways all the time.
0: Thank you. That was a very beautiful and thorough answer. Um, you mentioned briefly in, in, in your in your response here, um <clears throat> this the 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 connection, the trans connection, the uniconnection to the Hidra connection to Sufism. you talk about some of your experiences here when you go to um, you know, Sufi uh, it um Sites and uh, some of the privileges you end up getting, or wh- how you can access and how you operate in there, and depending on um, how you're perceived and so on—really fascinating stuff there. Could you could you elaborate on the connection between Sufism um, and, uh, and and transness in South Asian context?
1: In in some ways, you could say that the community, the Chajja sort of community, is itself um, some kind of Sufi community, and. This is maybe something that some Muslims who do not have this this connection to these organic local forms to Islam anymore, or who may come from um from from other Muslim contexts where nothing like that exists, um, they, they might might find this a little bit shocking, you know, and a number of a number of people who uh we in the west might identify as mostly trans women actually and they are considered a kind of sufi actually but but it is in particular in in rural contexts in pakistan and india they are often really treated that way they are treated like a religious community the the social organization of the community is very much like a community of uh of dervishes which is you know it's a specific dervish is a specific term for um for specific mendicants in the in the sufi movement um, you have some regions for example in pakistan in sindh where the an, another name for the community is actually fakir. and uh faqir is it, in, in arabic it, it literally means a poor person but it's um it's used to refer to somebody who's spiritually poor, you know, who has given up everything in life just for God. That is a faqir. It's a specific term for um, again for a dervish or a Sufi. And in Sindh, the Khajasaras are addressed as faqirs, you know, so um they are understood as a mystical community because they are not part of mainstream society, because the, because mainstream society, to some extent, even though mainstream society also actively is, is the culprit there, you know, in, in ostracizing people and marginalizing people, but at the same time, um, mainstream society also acknowledges that people who are marginalized and ostracized that they may be especially close to God. And that that is a general Muslim thought. You know, the Quran says this, that God is with the oppressed, God is with the marginalized. So that is not something that's just some kind of crazy folk belief in some region. No, it's it's very much connected to a very fundamental thought in Islam. The community also has a very strong connection to the Sufi shrines, both in India and Pakistan. And you will... At, at many many sufi shrines you will find um the community gathered especially at the urs festivals uh, urs are um celebrations of the death anniversary of a sufi saint um and at these urs festivals you will always find uh the community being present there and my my personal experience both in in india and pakistan has been that as a as a person who's perceived as Khajasra or Hijra, you're always very, very highly respected by the, you know, by the Khadims, the officials at these Sufi shrines. You're very, very well treated and they do, um, they do treat you very much like a person on on their own eye level, like somebody who, you know, somebody who is close to the saints as well. Um nowadays more so in india than in pakistan i have to say because in pakistan a lot of these shrines have now been overtaken by these official wax structures and there has been a process there have been other people have written about that a lot of academic studies actually on on how this this process leads to um you know, there, there are these official structures which try to curb heterodoxy and which try to make these Sufi shrines more orthodox and more in line with scriptural Islam. So in, in that context, um, the community has been, again, a bit, bit ostracized more in Pakistan. But in India, what I've seen is that, that it's still very, very much alive, this respect of the the shrine structures for the community. And the interesting thing is that I, I just mentioned the Urs, you know, these, these um, anniversaries of the death and the death of a saint. And the word Urs actually means uh, means wedding, marriage. So the death of a Sufi saint is imagined as the Sufi saint's wedding with a beloved who is God. And this kind of this this image in Sufi, in Sufi thought, is often uh, described in a way that we could almost call transgender as well, because God is in this in this story. He's imagined as as a man, as the and the the bridegroom, the male lover. Um, even though, of course, as Muslims we know, God does not have a gender, but this is how. It, it's depicted in Sufi poetry in that context. And then the saint is the bride who has been waiting for her bridegroom. You know, So the male saint suddenly assumes some kind of feminine identity in this relationship with God. And that, that's why this, this language of Urs is used. So there is an intricate connection between trans identities and between this poetic language of, of Sufism and we have so many reports of so many saints of South Asia in particular, so many of the Sufi saints, um, Nizamuddin Aulia and Amir Khusro in Delhi, but also many of the Punjabi saints like like Bullesha, for example, um, where we have stories about how they related positively to the community, how they also they, they played with their own gender. We know of the Punjabi Saint Bulesha. We know that he he lived actually in the community for a while. He lived with um with both uh straight cis sex workers and with the Khazar community and and he danced like a woman did and he put uh the, the, these gungurus, these um what you call these, these anklet belts on, which are always traditionally identified as something feminine and female, and he danced in that way, you know. And uh, so, so a lot of these Sufi saints, are, we have a lot of stories about them. not Not that they were literally transgender, but they interacted with the community very positively. They were living with the community, and they were using... Uh, cross-gender and transgender language to uh, to describe their own relationship with God.
0: Oh, that is so powerful. So you frequently discuss colonialism's impact on the Hidra community and the Hwajasada community in South Asia. Can you tell us about some of these impacts? And I know you've addressed parts of these of how things were before, um, you know, in, in, in Muslim course, in royal course historically. Um, But what happens with colonialism and what are some of the legacies that we're dealing with now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's a tricky subject because we sometimes tend to romanticize pre-colonial past too much and I I, I find it important that when we talk about these things that we, you know, we, we keep the balance a bit and we also realize that, you know, the pre-modern, pre-colonial times were not paradise, you know, there were um, a lot of issues in those societies as well, there was oppression in those societies and and people who were different were always marginalized, Um and of course, patriarchy was was present in pre-colonial Muslim societies as well. And of course, it didn't make it easy for, uh, first of all, for cis women, but also for everybody else who um, may be viewed as more feminine um, or, or somehow as as identified with the feminine. However, we do know that, on the one hand, what what I mentioned before, that we we do know that. Um, members of the community were employed in very, very high positions at, at the Muslim courts in South Asia. And uh, yes, we also had this phenomenon of, uh, of slavery and of, of men being force, forcibly castrated and then becoming slaves as, as eunuchs at the court. But we have several reports also of people who were very, very clearly described as born eunuchs not forcibly castrated, but born eunuchs, and of people who came from these indigenous communities. So that is the one thing that 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 members of the community could hold these very, very strong and important and powerful positions and were respected as such and were also identified with that. Um, The other thing, you know, what I just talked about, the connection between the community and and the Sufi saints, for example, that was something that was much, much more also, um, you could say it was mainstream Islam at that time you know well nowadays we think of it as yeah these local customs and okay and, and 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 we call it sufism we you know we give it a specific name and we associate it with specific practices but at that time it was just the islam that everybody accepted and and and, and practiced um and there definitely was no criminalization no persecution um not not even, uh, certainly there was no persecution and no criminalization of these trans identities, of these gender identities, but there wasn't even, um, there wasn't even much focus on persecuting homosexual behavior, for example, because under, uh, under Hanafi, traditional Hanafi law, which was the dominant kind of Sharia law in South Asia, um, homosexuality wasn't it was considered a sin it was considered a crime when it was uh when it was you know seen by for witnesses and so on and so on but it wasn't considered one of the hut crimes of the hudud the 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 serious sins the serious crimes so and and political entities didn't have much interest in in persecuting people because of something like that so there was much more um much more fluidity uh, in dealing with issues of gender and sexuality in those times and um even when we're talking about uh, straight and cis people you know we always we have this idea that that muslim women in the past were very very segregated and they couldn't have any you know free movement but when we actually look at the accounts from in particular, South Asian history, what we see is that it was in colonial times that this very, very severe segregation was enforced, and actually in pre-colonial times, it was much, much more relaxed, actually. So, in general, we had an environment that saw many things connected to gender and sexuality in a much more relaxed way. There was a certain fluidity about gender and sexuality that was accepted, and um, when the British came, they couldn't deal with any of this. And uh, it's it's not for nothing that we speak about, we often speak of Victorian values, you know, or Victorian attitudes towards sexuality and gender. And of course, these Victorian values, Victorian attitudes, they are named after Queen Victoria, who was the ruling queen of the British Empire for the larger larger time period of the the British Raj in in South Asia and uh, the the British colonial regime enforced these um these Victorian values very very strictly um they started to persecute homosexuality and they also started to persecute these um these trans identities they, outruled the, um, uh, the 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 they outruled occupying they they are out, out, outruled this whole uh what you call this like the um they they outruled eunuchs, basically i mean also the you know the social institution at the courts they outruled that they forced where they could do it they couldn't do it all over South Asia because you know their their power it's a complicated thing in some areas of South Asia the British ruled directly in other areas they didn't rule directly but they ruled um, via local rulers Um, in those areas where they ruled via local rulers the trans community actually still had some kind of protection because of the local rulers, the local Muslim rulers, in particularly, they, they, they protected them, and we find that especially in Hyderabad in South India, um, where the local rulers were very, very respectful towards the community and protected them, and Hyderabad for a while was something like a safe haven for the community. But in areas where the British ruled directly, they criminalized the community, and. Um, what they did in Lucknow, for example, is that they forced the eunuch servants of of the Muslim elites. They forced medical examinations on them, and to check whether they are actually castrated or not, whether they are intersex or not. And um, and this has never been done before, you know, which is important to uh, to point out, you know, for before that for the muslim elites, it was not so mu- it was not so much about the bodies of people there was no medical examination as, a, as as a proper muslim you wouldn't you know you wouldn't force somebody else to strip naked in front of you and 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 show you their genitals but the british forced the the eunuch servants um to do that basically and um and then they found out that um that that a lot of these eunuch servants were not castrated and they were not intersex and they were just, as they would put it in their colonial British language, they were just transvestites. They were just men in dresses, actually. And it's interesting because here we see see a continuity, you know, between that kind of Colonial thinking and the kind of debates we have in our day and age now about trans identities, you know, and who is a real trans person, who should be accepted as a trans person, all these regimes of medical examinations that we also have in our transition processes, Um, all these ideas about men in dresses who are entering female safe spaces, you know, that all goes back to these kind of colonial colonial projects and colonial ways of argumentation, actually. The the British enforced that, and that led, I mean, it had catastrophic consequences for the community, you know, not only that a lot of members of the community were thrown in prison, Um, the community was part of the Criminal Tribes Act, uh, which was um, a colonial British law that criminalized several communities. Uh, in South Asia, um, and it it complete it destroyed the the traditional structures that the community could rely on. You know, they couldn't be employed anymore by households, but also they were persecuted. They couldn't so easily go around and bless uh, people anymore. Um, and and that was the start of a very severe marginalization that continues until today. And what is um what is even more sad is that then, in the at the end of the nineteenth century, what we see is that more and more of the local elites, of the local Muslim elites actually they they start to uh, imbibe and embody these Victorian values as well. And suddenly these Victorian values become Muslim values, you know? And suddenly, we see, um, actually people who we we now often describe as progressive Muslim writers, you know, people like Sayyid Ahmad Khan, for example, who suddenly start to talk about the eunuch problem, who see this community as a problem suddenly, and who, who identify this community as one of these many, many uh, cultural manifestations of Islam in South Asia, that are actually considered backwards and um and, and a hindrance to civilization and progress and so on and so on. And and, and that that has a, a devastating until today it has a devastating influence on how Muslims nowadays treat these communities and treat issues of gender and sexuality.
0: That's that's the thing. Colonialism ends up standardizing um you know the stigma against um trans people or anybody who wasn't binary or non-male non-female and um i always say it it, it's very frustrating that the west uh you know now has caught up but we're still suffering with the consequences with the laws that they put in place in a lot of you know that they colonized i
1: mean and what we also see is that these this catching up of the West is also so fragile, you know, because what do we see now? We suddenly have all these turf discourses in the UK, in in Germany. Uh, Trump is making transgender issues part of his his campaign, and so on and so on. So, so you know, even. Uh, even being proud as the West of these achievements isn't actually much worth anymore, because it's 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 absolutely fragile, and it could all be gone within a few years again.
0: That's a very good point. Yeah, and and because it, it it's it's as if I mean we've all we always kn- we've always known, and we all know that the West expects us to, um, you know, be on the same on, on its moral timeline, and I expect everybody to be on its moral timeline. So when it wasn't okay to be gay. You are backwards, and now when it is okay to be gay, but you still have the colonialist laws in your country that the U.S. well, not the U.S. that the West installed. Um, you're you're still backwards. So it's like you're we're backwards no matter what we do, but the West yes. gets um, you know controls the power over those definitions. And so um, I one of the things that I really loved about your book was that you acknowledge something like privilege. You know, you it's a part of your instability and stability and ambiguity. And identity conversations i'd love to hear about, i'd love for our readers to hear listeners to hear about your experiences in south asia especially as a white european uh trans person
1: yeah that that, that actually is one of the the main questions in many ways that that a larger book uh, large part of my book revolves around and i've i've dedicated a whole chapter just to that question it's called the unbearable whiteness of being um you see, what I what I describe is how, as as a young trans person in a European country, and a person who comes from a family with all these migrant histories, and and as a Muslim, I always I I always thought as a young person. Um, and you also have to remember. I mean, I was born nineteen eighty. Uh, I was a teenager in the nineteen nineties we really weren't very woke at that time, you know, we didn't know much, you know, and I, I just thought that I could take it for granted that I was a part of, you know, I was one of the marginalized, I was one of the oppressed, I was thinking and talking a lot about my own marginalization, but by that also constructing... Some kind of moral immunity, right? Because if you say you are marginalized, you are oppressed. That does have also, um, it, it has currency in our our world today, and even more so now that we are so much woke. Um, you know, it it has a certain value to say that. And I'm not saying that being marginalized gives you currency, what I'm saying is identifying yourself with that, you know, seeing yourself mostly in those terms gives you, again, what I call this moral immunity, because you could say, okay, I'm the victim, I'm marginalized, I'm on the good side of history. And then you forget to think about all your privileges, you know, and in my case, you forget to think about the fact that that. You have a german passport which gives you a lot of privilege um you uh you have a lot of white privilege you have uh, also structural privileges like uh, maybe a good education like um uh, like just social networks for example that do not exist in other societies um and you you forget about these things and you 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 forget talking about that and thinking about that. And um, and as I said, I had, fr- from an early age on, I had this issue with belonging. So I never felt that I belonged. And I, I, I didn't quite belong to German mainstream society. I didn't feel that I belonged there. But I also didn't quite belong to my small German-Turkish mainstream mosque that I went to as a teenager. I didn't belong there. I, I never really found that space where I felt that I belonged. And then I I went to South Asia and I thought, okay, I am a Muslim trans person. I interact with this Muslim trans community. Um and finally I belong. And for a while I, I did I did get a certain sense of belonging there in the community and um and people also they, they also willingly gave me that sense of belonging because a lot of people were actually, they, they were astonished in the community, a lot of people were astonished at how easily I adapted to life in the community, how easily I adapted to life in South Asia, um, how quickly I learned Urdu, how much... I mean, I was also I was a very young person. So when you are in a very young, you are a very young person, and you're discovering yourself, and you're developing your identity, and you are in a specific cultural setting. Of course, you make a lot of that cultural setting your own. So I, 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 I did, you know, I did adopt a lot of, a lot of let's say, South Asian Muslim cultural traits and made them my own just because I found myself in that specific vulnerable situation in that setting. And and people in the community gave me that that feedback um, that, oh, yeah, you're one of us. You know, you're one of us. Um, and in particular, also being a Muslim helped with that. Because, of course, as Muslims, we are supposed to be one umma and and so on and so on. Of course, we know it's not, you know, it's not quite, like that but that's the the official story um but then it it took me quite a while to realize that things are not that simple and that when i'm moving in india i'm still there with my privileges and when i'm moving in pakistan i'm moving with my privileges and unlike a lot of my sisters there i'm not actually i i don't need this community to survive for example and a lot of my sisters in in Indian Pakistan, they need the community. They don't have anybody else who supports them. And as I said, it's a community that's, that's solidarious with other members in the community. I can, I can go there. I can enjoy my time there. I can interact with the community and then I can go back to Germany and I have my job here and I have, you know, I have other things to do here and I do not need the community for my survival. and i can i can always rely on my german passport um i can also um it's interesting because a lot of these things are are also connected to habitus and um it the, the way i'm treated in south asia is a lot dependent on what kind of clothes i wear for example you know but as soon as i give myself you know Western European appearance, I'm immediately treated as a privileged white European, of course, and and that makes things for me much, much easier, like interactions with the police, for example, um, who have been a cause of trouble for members of the community, both in India and Pakistan, for a long, long time. Um, They would often treat me very differently, of course. So I I came to a point, fortunately, I'm happy that I came to that point, but I, I realized at some point, oh, okay, um, I have this thing called privilege, and um, and I need to think about that as well, and I need to talk about that as well, and not just talk only about my own oppression and my own marginalization. And that does not make my own marginalization and oppression less less real, you know? but but these things can exist at the same time you can be a person who in one setting experiences discrimination and i do experience i do experience transphobia on a regular basis here in my society in germany it it still happens constantly to me and it it does hurt but that is as much a part of myself as the immense privilege that i also have and that my sisters in the community there do not have, um, but I, I have to say it. As I said, it took me a while to get to that point, and it's it's. I find that in in itself also a very interesting observation that it's much much more difficult to think about your privileges than to think about your marginalization.
0: Oh yes. Oh absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Um. So I. You seem so comfortable in, in the book and in your conversations in general. You seem so comfortable, so at peace with the concept of ambiguity and instability and complexity. And I'm I'm personally headed in that direction myself. And so this was so reading this book was very timely for me. And thank you for that. Can you tell our readers about why something that so many of us fear, perhaps naturally and understandably? and and that we avoid how how it can how these concepts these things can still serve us what is so good about them how does how does uh, it bring you peace
1: i think as far as i personally am concerned it, i think it gives me peace because i at some point in life i just realized that i cannot escape it you know um because for example because i never found that sense of belonging you know i i I didn't have the sense of belonging here in my German mainstream society. I didn't have it in my mosque. I didn't find it completely in the community either. So, what do you do with that? At some point, you know, are you are you going to just continue fighting and struggling with it, or are you just going to embrace it and say, "Okay, this is how I am. This is I don't have that. I, it's it's just not a part of me." Um, I do understand that people want to find comfort and stability and uh, and in these clear identities and in these clear belongings because it does make life on the surface, it does make life so much more easy. But I do believe that even if we have these these more clear belongings in our life and and these more clear identities and, and if we can claim them, um it's it's still all very fragile whether we acknowledge that or not and 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 i'm you know i'm a big history person and I, I i think people who look at human history they will always realize how ephemeral is that the right word like how you know like like every everything everything passes so quickly oh, yeah, and...
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: my... yeah I guess everything, I mean, there's nothing in history that's, that that really is stable, you know? Society is constantly changing. Identities are constantly changing. Um, borders are constantly changing. Cultures are constantly changing. Empires are falling. New empires are raising. You know, this has been going on for, I don't know, 40,000 years, maybe longer and we can't really do anything about that. So I, 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 in particular, in times like ours, where I think a lot of us realize how threatened this, this little soap bubble that we live in is, actually, you know, and we, we have these these uh, debates now in society and politics that no matter on which side of, of this debate you are, but but these debates give you this sense of everything is falling apart. Nothing, we can cannot take anything for granted anymore. We don't know what the future brings, whether there will be, you know, a new world war ushered in by the US and Russia or not, or whether there will be, you know, what, what climate change will bring, you know. Um, we are very aware of that at this point in history. We know how fragile everything is and and how quickly everything could change even within a day. And I think the best way to deal with that is just to accept it and to embrace it and to understand that as difficult as that is, as difficult, all this ambiguity and not knowing and not being so sure of yourself also, your, your beliefs and your identities, as difficult as that is, but there is also freedom in that, there are opportunities in that, there are possibilities in that. Because it's not just about the nightmares that are waiting for us, you know, it's also about the beautiful things that are waiting for us, that maybe we also do not realize at this point that they could come uh, within a day or within a second.
0: Yeah, so much in there. Thank you. So my final content question is I so I really appreciated the discussion on homo nationalism and western hypocrisies in dealing with lgbtq issues and communities and the culturalizing of women's rights um, and LGBTQ issues. Can you tell our readers what homo, nat- homo nationalism is and what you see as some of its dangers and its relevance to this discussion?
1: Yeah, homo nationalism is a term that's used in uh, in, in in different ways by different people. I think it was first Jasper Boer who coined it. Um, but but in all the um, all the all the variants of its use do have in common that w- we do see nowadays, in particular in Western societies, a tendency to use the issue of LGBT. QI rights um, as as, as some kind of, you know, as as, as an issue that gives us in the West some sense of supremacy over other societies, you know, and it contributes to our nationalism. And it is very much related to, um, you you pretty much um, hinted at that already in your question, it's very much to how how women's rights are also um, appropriated by nationalisms, by um by by Western supremacist discourses actually. You know, the, the, the that classical thing of oh we um we we waged a war in Afghanistan to to liberate the women. You know what this war really did for women is really, you know uh then in the end not really of interest. Um but this is used as a point of propaganda to, to rally support for this war. And we see the same with LGBTQI rights. Um, we see that internationally um, LGBTQI rights are used to constantly affirm that we as Western societies are better than other societies. Um I don't know how much this was followed in the US because uh, the US is not classically a, a soccer country or a football country as we would call it here in Europe. But for example, there was this um, this soccer World Cup uh, in, in the last year and there was a huge debate uh, around, around the um, LGBTQI rights in Qatar. You know, And it was constantly present in our media here in Europe, whether in the UK or in Germany, it was constantly discussed LGBTQI rights in Qatar, LGBTQI rights. And what I found fascinating during that debate, but also very sad, was that basically the whole discussion was about how there is a lack of LGBTQI rights in Qatar, which is true, there is. But then also to infer from it, that Arab societies are just terrible and horrible and they oppress women and they oppress sexual minorities. And then also to constantly say, but we, we know better. We are the good guys. We support LGBTQI rights. Not even once I saw in this debate um, an interview with an Arab LGBTQI activist, for example you know so there was no interest actually for the for the perspectives of lgbtqi people in the region the whole debate was just about saying we got it right we do it well the others don't so that is a typical example of homo homo nationalism i would say um and then on another level when we look at our internal politics in western societies homo-nationalism also, uh, it also manifests as that kind of, that line of argumentation that um, even somebody like Trump employed actually, and Trump is certainly not a friend of the LGBTQI community, come on, you know. But even Trump tried to use at some point the issue of LGBTQI rights to say something negative about Muslims and to defend his project of, you know, Muslim travel bans and immigrants. There should be no immigrants from Muslim countries and so on and so on. So even for conservative and even for right-wing politicians in our Western societies, LGBTQI rights are still good enough to mention when you can use them for your propaganda against immigrants and your propaganda against Muslims. And that is something we see very frequently. We see it constantly here in our conservative politics in in Germany as well, we see it in the UK, that even right-wing and conservative politicians who themselves are actually misogynist and they are homophobic and they are transphobic, but if they can use LGBTQI rights, to marginalize immigrants and Muslims, then they will do it.
0: And there it goes, you know, connecting it to our previous uh, discussion on the West setting the standards and, you know, setting a particular moral timeline and its ideas of what yes. is at least sufficiently we're sufficiently supporting of trans rights. It's absolutely bogus. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Leila. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I have no doubts that our listeners will as well. I'm grateful that you gave us your time.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's been a special pleasure today to talk to you about my book. Thank you.
0: All right. So that was my interview with Leila Yagiela about her new book, Among the Eunuchs, A Muslim Transgender Journey, published in 2022 with Hearst Publishers. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you again soon. Salaam.